let's pray together. Father, thank you for the unique privilege and opportunity it is for us to gather together. Um, we don't want to forsake that. It's so easy for us to do, but we're thankful that we get to stand shoulder to shoulder. Sometimes a little tighter than we care for, but to come together to worship you, to put our eyes on you, to lift praises to you, to, to maybe even sacrifice our comforts so that we can potentially experience the comforter in a much deeper, real, raw level. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for the chance that we have together. As we turn to your word, Lord, um, I know that this to be true, that your word is profitable. It's profitable for teaching, even for rebuking, but ultimately to correct us and to constantly train us in the right way of living, training us in righteousness. So I pray, Lord, that your word would be profitable this morning. As we read it, it would go forth, it would bear fruit, and that we would learn to walk in the ways that you would have for us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm just going to go ahead and say, if you brought a friend today, I'm sorry, this is going to be very challenging, okay? Have your Bibles. Go ahead and open up with me to Acts chapter 9. So here at Community Bible Church, if you're new with us, we preach through books of the Bible. So I finished last week in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, which means this week we are picking right back up in Acts chapter 9, verse 32. And what we're going to be looking at today is, is the longest single narrative in the book of Acts. Okay, Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 actually shares one story, one common story. Now, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 10 specifically today, but the reason that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, spends so much time in this one narrative is because it is a huge deal. Y'all, we can't overstate how big of a deal this passage of Scripture is because it's this passage of Scripture that makes the, the gospel to the Gentiles possible. This is the passage where the gospel moves outside of Samaria, Judea, Jerusalem, and begins to move to all nations. So that you and I are gathered here in Richmond Hill, just south of the Ogeechee, worshiping Jesus. All of that is because of what we're going to find here in this passage. Okay, So let's not overstate it, but let's jump right in. All right, Acts chapter 9, verse 31 is where we concluded last week. And what Luke does is he summarizes that little season of the church. He says, so the church throughout all Judea and Gal Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. So the church is growing. It's, it's moving. And, and what we see happening is exactly what Jesus had commissioned his disciples to do. So if you've been with us since the beginning, I preached a long time ago, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus told his disciples, go and be my witnesses to all people, to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And what's happening right now in Acts chapter 9 is the gospel has moved to Jerusalem. Church is being formed. It's growing. The gospel has moved to Judea and Samaria. The gospel is forming and building the church. But one thing is still lacking in that thesis statement. Any takers? Extra points? Ends of the earth. The gospel has yet to move to the ends of the earth. Why? That's what we have to address today. Why has the gospel, seven years after Pentecost, still not gone to the ends of the earth? I'm going to actually go ahead and give you the reason. And I'm going to spend about 30 minutes screaming at us about the reason. Okay, It's partiality. The reason that the gospel has not moved to the ends of the earth is because of partiality. Webster, who seems to be pretty smart, says that partiality is an unfair bias in favor of one person or group of persons over another. It's, it's the sin of prejudice. 
It's discrimination. It's default in every one of us to honor and respect one category of people over another. What stood between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the ends of the earth is partiality. It's the sin of partiality. So before I actually read our text today, I need, I need to help us understand that this sin of partiality, y'all, it had been building for centuries. Like the early church just didn't wake up and go, you know what, we don't really want to go to the Gentiles. Because their hatred for the Gentiles, for the nations, had been building for centuries. So let me take a quick second and start at the beginning and kind of show how this has happened, okay? In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God created. He created Adam and Eve, male and female, in the image of God they were created. And then he told them to do what? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. In essence, when God created his image in his people and then told his people to fill the earth, he's saying, I want the earth to be filled with my image. So in Habakkuk, Habakkuk sees a vision of how the glory and the knowledge of God has filled the earth as water covers the sea. God creates man and woman in his image to fill the earth with his image. But we all know in Genesis chapter 3 what happened. Problem happened. Sin entered in. So no longer is the image of God clear and distinct. It's marred, right? It's, it's corrupted. So as mankind continues to spread across the face of the earth in Genesis chapter 3, they're filling the earth not with the image of God. They're filling the earth with the image of sin. But church, this is what you have to know, and we're going to see it in Acts chapter 10 over and over. God is the initiator in this story. From cover to cover, he's the author. He's the writer. He's the one initiating everything. So he, in Acts, I mean, Genesis chapter 9 says there's, there's got to be somebody, somebody that I can use, somebody that I can continue to use to push my image to the earth. So he chooses Noah. And in Acts chapter 9, I mean, gosh gracious, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, he tells Noah, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. You heard that before? We see it over and over through Genesis. And they, Noah was. He was obedient. Unfortunately, the apple fell far from the tree. If you read anything about Noah's descendants, y'all, they were corrupt. So they continue to fill the earth with sin. So Genesis chapter 12, God once again, as the initiator, chooses somebody else. Anybody know who this is? Abram. Let me read to you what God chose Abram for. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Did you catch that? I will bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless that nation so that that nation will be a blessing. He says, and in you, because of the blessing, I'm going to give you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That word families is the word nations. God's saying, I'm going to bless you, Abram. And what's the, what's the nation that came from Abram? Israel. He said, I'm going to bless you, Israel, so that through you, all the nations will be blessed. Church, the remainder of the Old Testament is filled with God using and blessing and leading that nation so that they may be a blessing to all peoples. Even as they start to slip into idolatry and God begins to discipline them, he's disciplining them because he loves them, right? And it, it forms more righteousness. And as he disciplines them, it's for a reason, so that they would in turn be a blessing to all nations, However, what tends to happen when you live a favored life, a blessed life, is you stop forgetting your so that. The church of, I mean, the, Israel, the Israelites begin to, to lose that so that. 
They began to revel in the fact that they were the blessed people of God, the treasured possession, the apple of God's eye. They, they saw themselves as different, as blessed, but they forgot that they were supposed to be a blessing. All of that blessing was for a so that. Church, in short, they just became prideful. And when we become prideful, we begin to look at ourselves and we turn our gaze inwardly and we're only focused on ourselves. So being Jewish became the equivalent of just being blessed instead of being Jewish was supposed to mean I'm I'm to be a blessing, to pour out this blessing on everyone. Church, this pride, centuries and centuries before Acts chapter 10, began to create a, a disdain for, even a revulsion at anybody that was different than them. It became an us, the blessed people, and a them, everybody else. And there was actually a word they began to use to define that, that them, the word Gentiles. Gentiles is, is the word goyim, which just means nations. There was this word that we would, we would use to define us versus them. We, the blessed people, everybody else. We, the clean people, then them, the unclean. They were the Gentiles. And church, again, over centuries and centuries and centuries, this, 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 this cognitive identity began to infuse themselves so much that they began to create strict adherences to stay away from the them. So a strict Jew would never be a guest in a Gentile home. A strict Jew wouldn't even drink milk that had been milked from Gentile hands. A strict Jew cannot buy cooking utensils that were sold to them by a Gentile because in doing so, they would now be unclean, us and them, clean and unclean. Church, this, this identity was formed deep within them. And it went both ways. As the Jews became more of a blessed and treasured possession, the Gentiles don't really like them either. Had a lot of things to say about them too. So we have this massive distinction between the people of Israel and the rest of the world. Let me demonstrate how far this went by just pulling up the, the temple, the place of worship that the Jews would go to worship. What I want you to see here is this is kind of the outline of the temple. Temple is where the presence of God stands. Look at the most outer courtyard highlighted there in green. What court is that? It's the court of the Gentiles. A literal wall stood between the Gentiles and the presence of God. But once again, God is always the initiator. So what does he do? He steps in. He sees this massive distinction, and he steps in. He still wants to bless all nations through Israel. So what does he do? He sends his son, Jesus. And all throughout the Old Testament, Jesus was prophesied to be from the nation of Israel, of the tribe of David, and that he would be a light to the Gentiles, not just to the blessed people, but to all peoples. Jesus taught in the Gospel of Matthew that the gospel of the kingdom must be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus told the Jews very clearly, listen, it's not the traditions that make you a treasured people. It's not your laws that make you clean. It's not what you eat that defiles you. It's what's inside of you. And after he confronts them with that, he immediately goes into the regions of Tyre and Sidon and ministers to Gentiles. It was Jesus who came into Jerusalem. And he walks into the temple and he sees money changers and the lenders. And they're, they're, st- they're sitting with their tables where the court of the Gentiles separates court of the Gentiles and the innermost courts, practically barring Gentiles from entering into the presence of God. So what does Jesus do? Sweet, meek, little Jesus. Flips tables, drives the money lenders out, and he says this in Mark 11, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. 
church centuries of cultural bias, ethnic prejudice, and simply the sin of partiality, it's hard to undo. And although God had prophesied it, spoken it over his people, although he had sent Jesus to model it, to teach it, and and even come to eliminate the wall that divides people, we see in Acts that the church, his closest followers, his, his apostles, his disciples, were just slow in understanding, slow in following suit. So what does God do? He initiates. You seeing a pattern here? He initiates. So he chooses a leader. He says, listen, I've got to, I have got to get the church to be a bit more inclusive. So who does he start with? Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Peter. He starts with Peter. Peter, who Jesus said would, would be the rock on which the church was built. It was Peter who inaugurated the church on the day of Pentecost by preaching in Jerusalem. It was Peter who went to Samaria in Acts chapter 8 to pray for the church of Samaria that they would receive the Holy Spirit. So Peter starts the church in Jerusalem. Peter's part of the church in Samaria. Now God's going to use Peter to open up the church to the Gentile world, to all nations. So pick up in Acts chapter 9, verse 30. I didn't even read the passage yet. I got a chapter to read. Hang in there, okay? Acts chapter 9, verse 32. This is where it picks up. It picks up with Peter. And I, I'm actually not going to read 32 to the end of chapter 9, but let me, let me summarize it. It's two examples of healing at the hands of Peter. And when you look at that, you go, why would Luke include that here? Like Saul, in Acts 9.31, just went to Tarsus for seven years of obscurity. And now we're looking at Peter healing a couple people, and then we're going to see the gospel going to the Gentiles. Why put it here? It, it's simple. Luke is trying to show us why Peter was in the city of Joppa. Okay, he, he put these here to say, this is how Peter got to Joppa. So let me summarize it. Peter goes to a city called Lydda in 32 and heals a man who had been paralyzed for eight years. That got people of Lydda's attention. They end up putting their faith in the Lord. So Peter stays and begins to make a disciple of the church in Lydda. But while he's there, there's a sweet, precious, cherished saint of God in this other city called Joppa. Her name is Tabitha. Others called her Dorcas. That sounds rude. I think she probably went by Tabitha, okay? So Tabitha, being this precious, cherished lady, ends up dying. And the the disciples in Joppa are so grieved by that, they hear that Peter's close, so they send for Peter. Peter comes and raises her from the dead. Once again, probably gains some attention. People in Joppa put their faith in the Lord, so Peter stays and begins to make disciples of the church in Joppa. And that's how verse 43 ends. And Peter stayed in Joppa. The reason Luke puts us there is to make sure we know how Peter got to Joppa. Whew. Acts chapter 10. Let's read. Verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said, your prayers, your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, uh, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry. He wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending. 
being lit down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. All right, let's, let's pause here for a second. Let's, let's kind of dissect just really quickly the visions that are occurring. We have two visions. The first is the vision of Cornelius. Cornelius, about 30 miles up the coast from Joppa, living in Caesarea, was a Roman centurion, a soldier who oversaw about 100 soldiers. But what's interesting about Cornelius is that the Bible says he, he was a devout man who feared God. He gave alms and he prayed continually to God. The Bible references people like this as a God-fearer, right? People who fear God. But he's not a convert to Judaism. But what it means is, is that Cornelius apparently had rejected the idolatry or the polytheism of his homeland and had now put his faith in the God of Israel. So whether he was stationed in Israel for a while, he began to put his faith in the God of Israel, but he wasn't a full convert. Because to be a full convert, you had to take a couple radical steps. First is, you have to obey the whole Hebrew law, including, including dietary restriction laws. Church, that means no more bacon. That's a big deal. Okay, moving on. Let's move to a bigger deal. It also means that for someone like Cornelius, he'd have to be circumcised. So Cornelius believed in God, worshipped God, just didn't want to make the step. Okay, So he's a God-fearer. But apparently his devotion to God had arisen to him, grabbed God's attention. And God responds to his devotion and tells him, send some people down to Joppa, bring Simon, who is called Peter, and hear what he has to say. Let's go to Peter's vision. So the next day is how it opens. As Cornelius' servants are on the way to Joppa, Peter has a vision. Church, let me pause for a second and just say both of these visions happened while Cornelius and Peter were at prayer. I, I, you take from that what you want, but I see in that that God responds to prayer. He reveals himself to us as we give ourselves to prayer. So Peter's praying. It's 3 p.m. He probably skipped breakfast that morning. 3 p.m. He's getting pretty hungry. And all of a sudden he sees a great sheet. The Greek word is more like a sail of a ship. It's like this massive sheet that is beginning to descend from heaven. It is stretched out from all four corners. And on this sheet are all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. In Leviticus chapter 11, God makes a distinction for his people that they need to eat the clean animals alone. People who, who eat other things are called what? Gentiles. They eat those unclean animals. But here comes this sheet, and there's clean and there's unclean, and the voice from God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. By which Peter says, by no means, Lord. Never would I defile myself like that. I've been a strict Jew my entire life. There's no way that I would do that. And the voice says again, listen, Peter, what I have made clean, don't you call common, and don't you call unclean. Church, the vision that Peter was seeing was, and he was dense, and we'll get to that for a second. It took him a while to, to understand it, but it's abolishing the dietary laws. When he's seeing clean and unclean coming, and he's saying rise and kill and eat, it means you can associate with people who eat the things that you don't eat. 
He's breaking down some walls because these dietary laws would have forbidden a Jew like Peter to step into the home of a Gentile. Not just sit at the table, not just eat the food they prepare. Because they prepare unclean foods in that home, a Jew cannot go into that home. No fellowship, no relationship can occur as long as these dietary distinctions are in place. But Peter just couldn't get it. He has to hear it three times. I love Peter. I relate so much to Peter. He's so passionate, so impulsive. By no means, Lord. He's like, slow down. Hear what I have to say. And church, I think we have to hear it three times. We have to see this vision three times because cultural bias, prejudice, racism, partiality, y'all, those things are like an iceberg, right? We can be aware of about 10% of them in our lives, but there's like 90% that is just submerged in the bottom of who we are. So Peter has to hear it three times because for him to associate with a Gentile would be a radical reversal of all he had ever known to be true. So those are the visions. What about the reasons behind them? Let's pick up in verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, so he saw it three times, still confused. It says, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Who's the initiator in all this? God. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they start talking about Cornelius, how he is a God-fearer. And they said, and the holy angel was to send for you to come to his house so that he can hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them to be his guest. That's permissible. You can come into a Jewish home. Jewish can't go into a Gentile home. So the next day, Peter rose and went with them. Some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And take him to gasp for a second. This isn't just Jew versus Gentile. This is Gentile occupier. Someone who had taken my homeland, and now he's falling at my feet in worship. Peter lifts him up quickly and says, stand up, I too am just a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Dots are starting to connect for Peter a little bit, and Peter says, hang on now. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for me to be here, for a Jew to associate with or to visit any of the Gentiles, any of the other nations. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked again, why do you send for me? Cornelius begins to rehearse his vision, and he concludes it by saying this. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded of the Lord. Let's talk about that reason for a second. Peter asked for the reason twice. The servants come and say, hey, you need to come to Cornelius' house up in Caesarea because he needs to hear all that you have to say. The next day, Peter goes. He's obeying. He, he moves, and he reminds them, y'all, this is me breaking the law. I'm not supposed to be here. I cannot be in your home. But he's saying, but I'm starting to see. 
I'm starting to see that God is showing me I can't call any person common or clean. At this point, church, in the narrative, Peter is interpreting the vision as simply a a demolishment of the dietary restrictions. What it means for Peter is, oh, because food is clean or unclean and it's fine, I can come in your home. What it means is we can actually have some relationship. Peter thought that was it. In essence, the the food thing has been taken care of. I can come into your home. And, and I didn't plan on saying this, but you'll see this all throughout Acts. This issue is so deep. Because if you remember, Paul ends up confronting Peter to his face because Peter wouldn't sit at the table with the Gentiles. He would only sit with the Jews. This is so ingrained in him. He's going, listen, I see that God's breaking this thing down. It's unlawful for me to be here, but I'm beginning to get it. But the room is full. This centurion has fallen at his feet. Peter's thinking, Maybe there's something else going on here. Maybe there's another deeper reason. So he asked Cornelius, why have you sent for me? And he says, you're here so that we can hear what you have for us. Church, the reason for the visions wasn't just so that they could share a table. They could share in worship. They could share in gospel fellowship. Verse 34. So Peter opens his mouth. He says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Church is starting to set in. Peter's beginning to get it. So what does he do? He starts sharing the gospel. Look look with me at verse 36. As for the word, as for the word that you want to hear, as for the word that you sent me to share with you, he sent it first to Israel. Don't miss that. He sent it first to Israel. Why? Why did Jesus tell the Samaritan woman, listen, salvation is of the Jews. Doesn't that make it seem like it's, it's us? No. He sent it first to Israel so that they could be blessed with the good news and do what? Be a blessing. Carry that blessing of the gospel to all nations. He says that word that first came to Israel, let me tell you about that word. He says it's a blessing to us. It's a blessing to you. Because it's the good news of peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. He goes on in verse 39, this Jesus, he was anointed, he died on the cross, but on the third day he was raised again in verse 40. And he goes on to say, he appeared to me, he appeared to others, and he commanded us to preach to the people. That word is all nations. To preach to all nations. Peter's getting it. Scales are falling off his eyes. He's starting to see it for what it needs to be seen as. And then he says this, and everyone, church, everyone. Jews, Gentiles, all nations who believe in him can receive his forgiveness of sins through his name. Here's the point. Where Christ is Lord of all, all prejudice and partiality is removed. And worldwide fellowship is found for all. Where he is Lord of all, not some, not not us, not them, like where he is Lord of all all hostility is broken down and people who usually don't come together can come together in fellowship only where he is lord of all so while peter is speaking the holy spirit falls i'm going to summarize the rest of the chapter holy spirit falls on the gentiles they begin to speak in tongues and extol the praises of god the exact same way that the holy spirit fell on the jews in acts chapter 2 is the exact same way that the holy spirit falls on the gentiles in acts chapter 10 again no distinction There's no difference. Everybody is the same. So verse 47, Peter says, can anybody withhold water for baptizing these people? In essence, 
If God makes no distinction, neither should the church. Let the church accept all and baptize these Gentiles into the church. All right, that's a whole chapter of scripture, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply it to us in the next 10 minutes. What does that mean for you? What does this mean for us? Well, well, big picture, right? Theologically, it means that the gospel is for all people. It means that we are to be witnesses, that if you are blessed with the good news of the gospel, it is now your commission to be a blessing to all people. That's one of the takeaways. But I told you it's going to be challenging. Let's go a little bit deeper. Church, partiality, prejudice, bias, discrimination was standing as such a tall and strong wall between the gospel of grace and the Gentiles. So what did God do? He confronts Peter's own prejudice. He didn't say, hey, you Israelites, hey, you nation, you collective group. He went personal. He started with Peter. He started with Peter's prejudice. And as the rock of the church, as the holder of the keys of the kingdom, Peter's partiality came crashing down, giving all of us an example. Church, that sheet that Peter saw, that's descending, that that sheet is pulled by all four corners, north, south, east, and west. And it represents peoples, right? It's not just to represent clean and unclean animals. It's representing Gentiles, peoples of all nations, the millions, the billions of people that are all around this world that are different than you. People who have different educational backgrounds, racial backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, even spiritual backgrounds. And as that sheet descends, how quick are we to get personal? Just like Peter, to see people that are different than you descending. And you go, no, 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 by no means, Lord. By no means am I going to go towards them. Church, we, we have to be personal. Myself, this has challenged me so much. We are so quick to separate ourselves from whole churches just because they're different denominations. We avoid different ethnic or racial groups because of long-held stereotypes we all possess. We excommunicate and slam people in our churches because they believe different things on secondary issues like gifts of the Spirit or modes of baptism. We judge, gossip, ostracize those homeschoolers or private schoolers or public schoolers. We tilt our nose up when our kid makes travel ball because we don't want to be the inferior red ball. We go on and on, right? Don't we do this all the time? It's, it's in us. We're biased. We're a prejudiced, partial people. And here's where it gets really scary. The issue is magnified because you can have an open heart, an approved mindset towards God, and a judgmental one towards those he came to save. What was Peter doing when he saw the sheep? Praying. Does that not scare you? You can be spiritual. You, I can preach every Sunday and be guilty of the sin of partiality. That you can come here every Sunday, hear the word, pray, sing. You can serve in our kids' ministry and every Sunday leave here with the sin of partiality lodged deep in your life. That terrifies me. Y'all, that scares me to death. Church, we have to let God deal with our prejudices. Not someone else's. That's what we want to do, isn't it? Let's just be honest. Like, it's CNN's bias. And then if you're over there, you're like, no, it's Fox News' bias. We do this. We, we want to deal with the speck in our brother's eyes. And we so desperately try to avoid the log that's in our own. I want to encourage you to deal with the man in the mirror. Deal with yourself. Here's how I want you to do it. 
three points. I'm not going to leave you ill-equipped. How do we deal with the sin of partiality? First, remember the grace of Christ. Remember his grace. His grace is the only remedy for any sin, especially the sin of partiality. Paul, I mean, Peter says, truly I understand it is God who shows no partiality. He shows no partiality. You, you show partiality. What you need is him. What you need is the grace, the power that he has to make sure you don't show partiality in your life. Remember Ephesians 2 verse 11. Paul says, remember, you at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the blessings of the nation of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is your peace. He has, he has made us both one. He has taken Jews and Gentiles and made us one by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. It's his work. Jesus does this. He makes peace. He, through his grace. Church, just remember his grace. It removes any us versus them. When we look at ourselves, like if your gaze turns inward, and if, even if you look horizontally and look at other people, it's easy for it to be us versus them. But when you all stand equally and look at him, you're all on the same playing field. We're all just a bunch of sinners in desperate need of his grace. So remember his grace. That's the remedy for the sin of partiality. Secondly, though, you, you, we have to repent. We have got to repent of this sin. If you don't take anything away from this, other than what I'm about to say, I'm okay with it. Let me read to you something that a 19th century Scottish preacher wrote about the sin of partiality. He says, it would change your whole heart and life if this very night you would take Peter and Cornelius home with you and lay them both to your heart. If you would physically take a four-cornered napkin when you go home and pen and ink and write the names of nations and the churches and the denominations, and the congregations, and the ministers, and the public men, and the private citizens, and the neighbors, all the people you dislike, and despise, and do not, cannot, will not love. Write them on that piece of paper. He says, heap all their names into your unclean napkin. And just like Peter, look up and say, by no means, Lord. And then, go look in the mirror, and get such a sight of yourselves that you would never forget it. Why? Why would, I, why would I want to invite that level of heaviness and condemnation in my life? Because the kindness of God in revealing that to you will lead you to repentance. It's Romans 2, 4. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. When you become aware of what is actually in your heart, the response to that is, God, help me. Repent. Turn. Confess. Throw yourself onto the grace of Christ. But let me give you one more. We remember his grace. We repent of the sin. And we have to respond like Peter and Cornelius. We can't leave it there. We, we, we actually have to do something with it. That night, Peter and Cornelius, it wasn't just unlawful for him to be in the home. That night, they actually shared a meal together. They actually shared fellowship together. In fact, he stayed with them for many days. There was fellowship. There was community that was being formed. Church, this is for us. Like our local church, CBC Richmond Hill. We cannot fall victim to the pride of partiality. 
And we have when we have stopped reaching out to those that are different than us. We have got to reach out and stretch out to people who are different from you because the gospel of grace smashes any walls of hostility. Discrimination does not, in, does not happen when our eyes are on Jesus and we've embraced his gospel and we respond like this. Don't fall victim. We can't. We cannot fall victim because the gospel is for all nations, for all peoples. And if we think it's only for some, if we're only comfortable sharing it with some, go look in the mirror because we need the gospel to go to all peoples. So let me conclude. That chapter 10, a new phase in the work and ministry of the church has, has commenced. The door to the Gentiles has been bust open. And what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts is God continuing to reach all nations through the work of his church. So our team's going to come back up. They're going to sing a, a new song, um, one that we haven't done as a congregation. And um, it's really fitting. Let me read to you the chorus. And, and team, if you all want to make your way up, you feel free to. This is what the chorus says. It says, to the orphan child, send me, send me. To the outsider, send me. To the one in need, send me. And to the least of these, send me. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that once again your word, it teaches. And oh, does it rebuke. And it hurts. But I trust that your word, when you say you discipline us, and all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant in the moment, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So I pray that we wouldn't escape the conviction of sin, that we wouldn't try to hide from the challenge or the rebuke of your word, but that we would submit ourselves to your discipline so that it would yield a peaceful fruit of right living in our lives, in our neighbors' lives, in, this, in the life of this church, in the life of this community, and in the life of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, thank you that we were outsiders, that we were the least of these, that we were the them in this scenario, and yet your gospel reached us, your grace touched us. May we not respond by creating distinctions. So we pray, Jesus, that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.